I invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, Psalm 42. Just by way of introduction, this is what's often called book number two. You can probably see that in your headings in your Bible. It's a psalm by the sons of Korah, who were Israel's leaders in music. And it is, in some Hebrew manuscripts, combined with Psalm 43. And you'll notice Psalm 43 has no introduction to it, no postscript or no uh, introduction to it regarding who wrote it. And in Psalm 43, verse 5, actually that same phrase, why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me is used. Psalm 45. We're just going to look at Psalm 42 this morning uh, just due to uh, time. This is too long already. Uh, but uh, Psalm 43 is a companion to Psalm 42 as well. Before we read it and look at it, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is uh, honest, that you give us the truth in it. And we ask that you would light our path by it, that you would encourage our hearts if we need encouragement, that you would minister to any of us who are spiritually depressed or give us the grace to know how to minister uh, to those who are in order that your name might be praised and the world around us wouldn't scoff at you and we as your people would be encouraged even when we find ourselves uh, in the circumstances of this particular psalm. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, Psalm 42, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. As far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts. This morning, beloved brothers and sisters of Hope Church and everyone uh, listening this morning, uh, it's fairly straightforward. Uh, it's a kind of a slow pitch to say that the Christian life is a life of joy. Jesus made clear that the kingdom of heaven is a life of celebration. Uh, it's a, a kingdom of celebration in John 2 when he changed water into really good wine. Paul in Philippians 4.4 4 says rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Ecclesiastes 3.4 talks about a time to laugh and a time to dance. And nowhere do we see this joy more exuberantly displayed when David danced before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. His wife thought he was nuts, even a show off, but David just had a heart for the Lord, and that's what he did. However, 
what is sometimes the case with us as believers can be described as spiritual depression, which is often what this psalm is referred to as describing. And it's a situation that when we're in, we realize something's off. And when we see other believers in it, we realize something's off as well, because we're supposed to be, of all people in the world, the people who have deep-seated joy and contentment and peace. And I would even argue happiness, true happiness, right? Not just a smile painted on the face, but true joy and happiness and levity, uh, the, the kind of blessedness that Jesus talks about in the Beatitudes and that Psalm 1 talks about. But we can find ourselves, we can find other believers down in the dumps, the spiritual uh, dumps. And I want us to walk through this psalm looking at just a few things as we do. Number one, the condition of spiritual depression. What does it look like? Secondly, uh, some causes of spiritual depression. Some, I'm not saying this is exhaustive or that Psalm 42 is exhaustive regarding spiritual depression, but here's some causes of it that are listed here. And then also some cures for spiritual depression. So I want us to look at the condition, then the causes, and finally, uh, the cures. And by the way, if you would like this treated well uh, to read in depth, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think in the 1960s, wrote a book called Spiritual Depression, Great Stuff. And the first passage he turns to is actually Psalm 42.5. And then he walks through a bunch of other passages. So again, regarding spiritual depression, really good uh, stuff. And one more thing before we kind of walk through this, and I'll hint at it later on, but what we're dealing with here is spiritual depression, uh, there, uh, you could argue there, there's uh, depression, which is physically based, where our brains are just broken and we need medication. There's depression that's caused by trauma. So you go through experiences and you end up depressed based on that. There can be physical depression where we don't take care of ourselves. And we'll see that a little bit in Psalm 42. But there are many different kinds of depression. What we have going on here is a downcast soul. So it's spiritual depression. We're going to notice, kind of trace it to the roots and see what's going on. But I don't want any of us to think there's a one-size-fits-all regarding depression. Because as varied as human beings are, so varied can depression be in life. And it's hard to tease it out and follow it back. And we'll see different causes and different helps for it. But regarding Psalm 42, here we go. That First of all, the condition of spiritual depression, distance from God first. Verse 2, when shall I come and appear before God? So at this point, the psalmist just feels like God is a long way from him. God is far off. He's thirsting and panting for God. His soul is. God feels distant. He feels far removed. He does not feel close. And he's not experiencing the fellowship of God that we would oftentimes refer to like John talks about in 1 John. That is a foreign concept to him at this point. A second part of his condition is a cast down soul. Why are you cast down on my soul? And the word cast down just means to be crouched down, despairing, or humbled. So his spirit, his soul, his hopes are just kind of in the dirt. He's not talking about his mind at this point. He's looking on the inside of him saying, just everything inside of me is just kind of black and bleak and dark. It's cast down. I'm depressed. I'm despairing on the inside my soul, which is where all my hopes are found, where they spring from, is actually being cast down right now. A spiritually depressed person can be surrounded by and experience many delightful gifts from the Lord. They can have incredible spouses, incredible kids, incredible parents. They can have children who are a real blessing to them. They can have food, shelter, clothing, and abundance. As a believer, they have all the benefits that are theirs in Jesus Christ. They've been adopted into the family of God. They've got forgiveness of sins. 
They can have assurance of salvation. They've got a great future to look forward to that none of us can mess up and still find themselves. We can still find ourselves in the dumps, like our souls are cast down. It's, it's fascinating that if you look at this person from a third party perspective, from the outside, you say, why are you cast down? But indeed, we can find ourselves in this situation where even though everything could be around us going well, yet our souls are in the dumps. Something else about this condition is inner turmoil, verse 5, turmoil within me. And the word turmoil has to do with murmuring, growling, disturbed, or in an uproar. So the soul is cast down at the same time in an uproar. <laughs> and you might describe this as anxiety, right? The soul is cast down and miserable, but also anxious. It's in turmoil. It's turbulent. In fact, if you read plenty of books on depression, you'll discover that anxiety and depression often go with each other. There's depression, despondency, but also coupled with it a lot of anxiety usually. And the two go together, and that's this turmoil within his soul. And then finally, the condition of someone who is spiritually depressed, who's a believer, is soul thirst, verses 1 to 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When a believer is spiritually depressed, we experience intense soul thirst. Spurgeon wrote this, A camel does not pant after water brooks, because it carries its own water within it. But the deer does pant because it has no inward resources. After being hunted on a hot day, it has no inward supplies. It is drained of its moisture. So are we. We do not carry a store of grace within our own upon which we can rely. We need to come again and again and again to the divine fountain and drink again from the eternal spring. Hence, it is because we have a new life and that life is dependent on God and has all its fresh springs in him, that therefore we pant and thirst after him. O Christian, if you had a sacred life which could be maintained by its own energies within, you might do without your God. But since you are naked and poor and miserable apart from him, you must come and drink day by day of the living springs, or else you faint and die. On an encouraging note, one commentator wrote this, in this state of mind there is something sad, Meaning, in spiritual depression, as displayed in Psalm 42, there's something sad, but there's also something commendable. For the next best thing to having close communion with God is to be wretched until we find him. One of the great encouragements as a Christian is when we walk through spiritual depression where God feels distant, we are beside ourselves. We don't like it. We can't handle it. Because our souls were made for God, and when we feel cut off by him, our soul will want that back, and our souls will thirst for God, and we will not rest contentedly until we can find our rest in him again, and that fellowship is restored. So that's the condition of spiritual depression that Psalm 42 mentions here, and I want us to notice and kind of dig through some causes uh, of it. Uh, and I want us to notice five different causes of uh, what the psalmist is going through. Uh, isolation, oppression, abandonment, deprivation, and then trials or trauma. So first of all, isolation in verses 4 and 6. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Now, Hermon is mentioned here, and Mount Hermon is about 120 miles 
north and slightly east of Jerusalem, way up in the north, north of the Sea of Galilee. Mount Mazar is not a well-known landmark, but Mount Hermon is. And so what many commentators and people, scholars who study this believe is that this son of Korah is a long way away from Jerusalem. And maybe the Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles is happening. He's remembering what that looks like when all the hundreds of thousands of Jews get together or millions to celebrate God and his provision for them redemptively. And he's realizing, look, I'm a long way from where they are. He's isolated. And he talks about it. Notice the language. When the assembly gets together, there's glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping a festival. Now, this language is actually pretty uh, over the top. So the, the word shouts has to do with shouts or noises or voices, just, just loud talking and crying, etc. Crying in a good way, crying out. Glad has to do with joyful shouting or a ringing cry. So he's a long way from Jerusalem and he's remembering what it was like to be among the people of God when they would get together and just party, party God, sing about him, talk about him, cry about him, just resound with his praise through all this incredible music and singing and even just making loud noises, which is a great encouragement to those of us who are not good at singing but can just make a joyful noise. That's, large, that's some of what he's talking about here. Just the glad, joyful noises that accompany God's people when they get together. C.S. Lewis, in his Reflections on the Psalms, describes the excitement of an appetite for God as displayed in the worship found in the Psalms. And he, he described it this way. It has all the cheerful spontaneity of a natural, even a physical desire. It is gay and jocund. They are glad and rejoice. Their fingers itch for the harp, for the lute and the harp. Wake up, lute and harp. Let's have a song. Bring the tambourine. Bring the merry harp with the lute. We're going to sing merrily and make a cheerful noise. Noise, you may well say. Mere music is not enough. Let everyone, even the benighted Gentiles, clap their hands. Let us have clashing cymbals, not only well-tuned, but loud and dances too. Let even the remote island share the exaltation, Psalm 97.1. This is what the psalmist is missing. That incredible, glad, shouting, and joyous assembly of God's people. That's one of the causes of it. He's away from it. It's happening about 120 miles away from him or so. And he's not part of it, leading that procession. Now, I dare say that some of our worship services in our Christian world could qualify as a source of depression rather than as a source of joy fondly remembered. And thus, isolation from such a depression worship would aid in our depression rather than contribute to it. But let me say this. What the psalmist here misses in thirst for is being amid this incredibly delightful, joyous assembly when they are praising God. That is what he is missing. And that is what is causing his heart to be downcast. One of the causes of it that's causing his heart to be downcast. Let me just say this. This is self-explanatory, but let me just drive this home. One of the things that can cause us to become spiritually depressed is when we are prevented from being, think, shut in, sick, not doing well, prevented from being among God's people to worship and praise Him and just hearing others praise God and seeing it happen. Or if we can do this on our own where we withdraw ourselves from the assembly of God's people in their worship. 
we can find ourselves spiritually depressed because there is something encouraging to the Christian soul to not just sing in private and do our devotions in private, but to be around other Christians who are singing and paying attention to the word and praying together. There is something that encourages the Christian soul. It's just un- it's inexplicable. The world would walk in here and be like, you could have hired a better speaker. The music isn't all that great. Come on, what is going on here? But as Christians, we come together to worship and praise God. And it's amazing. And it's an encouragement to the Christian soul. The second cause. So isolation, the first cause. The second cause I want us to notice in Psalm 42 is deprivation. Verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night. Now I'm indebted to Lloyd-Jones for pointing this out. He was a medical doctor by training and then went into the ministry. And so I'm not surprised that he would see this. But what's going on if your tears are your food day and night? Sleep deprivation, you're up day and night. And you're not eating. If if your tears are your food and that's all you're eating, then you're deprived of both food and sleep. And it wasn't until I was diagnosed with severe clinical depression about eight years ago now and, and worked out of it or still working out of it, I guess, that I realized that not all depression is spiritually based or spiritually caused. But actually, you can run yourself into depression just by depriving yourself of some very basic things like food and sleep or just general nutrition and rest. I remember going to the Springfield Public Library and as soon as I was diagnosed, I checked seven books off the shelf. It was all they had. I just cleared them out of that local library. And as I read through them, all non-Christian authors, finally, I read Christian authors, very unhelpful, good books, but unhelpful for my condition. And I started reading them and they all said, sleep, diet, and exercise. And so I did it. And it was amazing, and what a help. And when I came back to Psalm 42 and read Lloyd-Jones on it, I was like, of course. So he's up all night. He's up all day, the psalmist is. He's sleep-deprived. There are a lot of us believers who may not understand that we're made up of both body and soul. And as our bodies go, so often our souls go. We may not realize that, but our souls know it. And if we go without proper rest and sleep and unplugging, we may think we're doing fine, but our souls will know that there's a problem. And our souls will often be the ones that are thirsting after God and crying out for him. And we are so exhausted. We can't even pray. We can't read the Bible. We can't get anything out of anything anymore because we are just beyond exhausted. I remember, I think I've mentioned this before, there was a government agency, I can't remember if it was military or civilian private sector based, but um, I guess if it was government, it would be civilian, but regardless, they did a study with some of their agents and part of the testing was they ran them through without food and sleep for about six or seven days. When that testing was done and those who passed, they offered them, do you want a meal or do you want to go to bed? 100% of the people chose what? Sleep. They haven't eaten for a week. Just give me a bed. That's what I want. And they slept, and they slept, and they slept. To not have proper rest, beloved, sets a human being sideways. In fact, some of the most tortured people I've ever met are those who medically, they're in a condition where they can't sleep. And it, it about drives them crazy. They can rest, they can close their eyes, but their body won't go to sleep. It's a miserable place to be. 
We need sleep. I remember after I had worked through this as well, talking to other believers who would get, you know, I was getting like three or four hours of sleep a night, tons of anxiety up at two in the morning. Other believers were talking about getting eight hours of sleep, even nine hours of sleep. Highly productive, incredibly encouraging believers, strong in the Lord, that much sleep. Yeah, we're all wired differently, right? We're all built differently. Maybe some of us can get by and some of us can. Some people are just wired physically to get by in six or seven hours of sleep, fully functional, doing really well. Some of us need eight or nine or 10 hours. Regardless, beloved, if we're gonna work through this, our spiritual depression, one of the very practical things some people might say is just try getting rest. Lloyd-Jones often had ministers come to him that would say, I went out of the ministry. He's like, when's the last time you had a vacation? Got a good night's sleep. Oh, it's been a long time, doctor then I'll consider your request after you go home and take a month off. After you take a month off or a few weeks off and get some sleep, I want you to come back and talk to me. They would almost be raring to go, almost always be raring to go and ready to go. We need sleep as human beings. So also food. The psalmist's tears are his food. And we're not sure, you know, why the psalmist is not eating, possibly because he's in captivity or in prison or maybe just has loss of appetite. We don't really know. He's obviously a long way away. Enemies are taunting him, so he could be in a really difficult spot. We're not sure of all the exact details, but he's not eating. And what he is eating is basically his tears, and he's just beside himself day and night over and over and over again. And thus he finds himself in this pit. And it's interesting, too, that in 1 Kings 19, remember after Elijah, Mount Carmel incident, what an amazing high point in his life, defeating the prophets of Baal. And then he runs away and ends up in this spot. Elijah asked that he might die, saying, it's enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Did you catch what the angel did? How did God minister to his servant Elijah with an angel? Elijah's sleeping, needed sleep. He just made him a good meal, but not just one, two. So he goes back to sleep and he was like, well, that was round one. We got the second course coming up. And Elijah's revived again. Very practical, right? You know, in, in our Christian thought, I heard one speaker say this, we can be really dualistic as Christians. Body and physical over here, soul and spiritual over here. And we forget that our soul is living in a body. It will in heaven too. It'll just be a perfect body. Our soul is inhabiting a body here and now. And our body that we live in is broken. Every one of them. None of us has a perfect body. None of us is perfectly healthy, perfectly strong. We're all subject to sickness and illness. We have to eat. Probably all of us would understand that if someone lived off sugar, they would come down with self-induced diabetes and destroy their kidneys. All of us would get that. Probably all of us would understand that if someone lives off salt, I mean, just pounds of salt a day, as much as they could pound down, it would likely affect their heart negatively. Or if they lived off caffeine, it would affect their heart negatively. Or if they drank too much alcohol, their liver would be destroyed. We all get that. But the brain is also an organ. 
just like the heart, just like the liver, just like the kidneys, it's an organ. And it takes nutrition to function. And if we don't eat right, we won't be thinking right, and it can affect our whole body, our whole spiritual outlook can be affected just by food. Now, I realize this is maybe a little unspiritual, but again, that just testifies to our dualism. And so we're not saying, hey, Christians have to be the best eaters. The kingdom of God is not about what we eat, right? Paul makes that clear. It's about righteousness. Well, beloved, just taking care of ourselves, just, just what we eat can be a real help for our spiritual depression. And then finally, trials, trauma, or oppression are a, can be a cause of spiritual depression. Verse three, they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Verse seven, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. And then verses nine to 10, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with the deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taught me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? So there's a, an image here. The psalmist envisions a waterfall and crashing waves that come one after the other. Deep calls to deep. It's like one wave is calling to another, keep coming. That wave crashes, it calls to the next wave, keep coming. And over and over and over again, yes, the psalmist is assaulted. Just feels like he's drowning and going underwater. And his enemies are taunting him while he undergoes this difficulty, saying, okay, where's your God? This God of Israel, this Yahweh, this Elohim, where is he? Like, shouldn't he come and deliver you? Shouldn't he be freeing you from our assaults? Shouldn't he be setting you free from what you're going through? So they're taunting him. He's being oppressed. And there doesn't appear to be any end to it either. Now, he's got some hope for the future, but there's no end necessarily in sight. Depression is often the lot of those who undergo acute trials and traumas or extended trials and traumas. Look, the believing soul can bear up underneath acute trials if they don't last too long, usually fairly well. But there are trials, there are oppressions, there are difficulties that you put a Christian in, regardless of our faith beforehand, and in the middle of it, we'll feel like we're in a clothes dryer being tumbled all around, and we are depressed spiritually. And our souls are very cast down, even though they have no right to be they're cast down, and we're in turmoil and difficulty. There are trials, there are traumas in life, whether we bring them on ourselves or other people introduce them into our lives unwanted. There are oppressions, there are difficulties that any of us may have gone through or will go through, and that will leave us in the dumps. That's how frail we are as creatures. We're made of dust, and if we've forgotten it, our souls certainly have not forgotten it. And when we go through a hard trial, our souls will know, yep, this is not fun. I'm downcast. I want God. I'm thirsting for him. Now, some cures for spiritual depression. If you look at Psalm 42, verse 5, Psalm 42, verse 11, and then Psalm 43, verse 5, there is a resounding phrase that we're going to sort of focus in on here. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Do you hear what the psalmist is doing? Now, <laughs> if you saw him living in a bubble and you were watching him, you might have said he's off his rocker now, he's lost his mind. He's talking to his soul. Well, he's looking inside, as it were, 
down at his chest saying, what's wrong with you, soul? Like, why are you cast down? And he's telling his soul what to do. Hope in God. You'll praise him again. He's your salvation. He's your God. The psalmist is preaching to himself. He's giving himself a sermon uh, to himself. He's preaching and he's also receiving. And Martin Lloyd-Jones said about this in his book, which again, I highly commend to you. I suggest that the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression in a sense is this, that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourself. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, end on this great note. Defy yourself and defy other people and defy the devil and the whole world and say with this man, I shall praise him yet. I shall yet praise him. When we are spiritually depressed, there is a sermon that is being preached to us by our souls and it goes something like this. You're worthless. God doesn't love you. Your future is black and dark and hopeless. Your life will never get better. You will never enjoy another day when God is precious to you. Just throw in the towel, give up, run from God, give up on God, turn to a substance for joy, turn to money or sex or the praise of men for joy and for hope, but don't hope in God anymore. There's a sermon, something like that, that our soul is listening to, and it goes around and around and around. And what the psalmist does in his depressed condition, he turns to his soul and starts preaching at it. What business have you to be disquieted or in turmoil, my soul? What right have you to do this? He talks to his soul. He challenges his soul. You know, it's easy to wallow in self-pity when, when we're depressed and, and we'll, our souls can say to us, look, you're special. You should never suffer like this. You have a right to be downcast. But humility, the Christian soul says this, why are you downcast soul? You have no right to be downcast. Now, I don't want any of us to think this is some sort of magic wand, right? I don't want any of us to think this is just mind over matter. Yeah, we can just rough our way through this. And I look at my soul and say, soul, what right have you to do this? No, no. Well, this is challenging work. This is humbling work. If you've ever been in the throes of depression, spiritual depression, you know that there is no magic wand out of this. So you're just looking to God to pull you out and to pull you through. But what a sermon. Soul, what right do you have to be downcast? Hope in God. Don't you know? who he is to you, this God has saved you and forgiven all of your sins. This God has set you upon a rock. This God has reached down to you in all of your sin and misery, and he has, in compassion, called you to be a child of his. He has given you all the righteousness you need to enter into heaven. You have nothing more to do to get into heaven. Your entrance into heaven is secured. And you just live the rest of your life praising him. And you have eternal life coming your way. So hope in God. Don't turn to substances. Don't turn to addictions. Don't turn to created things when we're spiritually depressed. Say, satisfy me, I just need a fix. No soul, hope in God. 
Pornography isn't going to help. Putting my hope in my career isn't going to help. Building a bigger savings account isn't going to help. Having a perfect marriage or family isn't going to help me. Having perfect health and being an amazing fitness isn't going to help me work through this. Hope in God, soul. Put your hope in Him. He's one worthy of our hope. He's one who can help. And has God ever let any of His people down? Fascinating. (laughs) Not once. Not one person one time. Hoping in Him has never, ever brought disappointment. So David's preaching to his soul. He's challenging his soul. He's relocating his hopes in God. And then he's considering his future. I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Look, realizing that the clouds will eventually lift, either in this life, which is usually likely regarding spiritual depression, not always, but usually likely, that spiritual depression, the clouds will lift and we will again be praising God with a a heart that's just filled with joy. But if that doesn't happen again in this life, it will for sure happen again in the next life. But there is no Christian who has a bleak future. Yet when we're spiritually depressed, our souls testify that your future is bleak. We preach to our souls something different. Your future is not bleak. You will praise God again someday. That's tremendously helpful and encouraging. And then One more thing that's a help, and that is to personalize God. Catch that language. My salvation and my God. It is easy when we are spiritually depressed to forget that the God of heaven and earth is mine. Our God. Personally, my God. He is precious to me. He is my Savior. He's the one who has redeemed me from the pit. Now, that may sound selfish to some ears. And again, that can go off in a selfish direction. This is just personal faith, beloved. This is a personal relationship with God. This is where we're crying out to hear from the, to him from the bottom of the pit saying, look, uh, my soul, what's going on? You're, you're going to praise God again. He's your salvation and your God's soul. He's our God soul. He's my salvation. He's my God. Look, for some who don't believe Maybe there are people that will encounter who don't believe or anybody here. Whatever God may be, it is to no advantage to me if he is not my God. Another man's health will not make me well. Another man's wealth will not make me rich. Another man's knowledge will not make me wise, wrote one commentator. Another man's situation will not make me dignified. The leaving out of one word from the will may ruin a man's hopes and blast all his expectations. The want of this one word, my, is the sinner's loss of heaven and the dagger that smites him into the second death. That pronoun, my, is just worth as much to the soul as God in heaven, because without it, you can't have them. If there are any here who don't know this God, who don't have him, who find themselves in spiritually depressed, and you should be, you should have a lot of elements of what David's, or the sons of Korah here is wrestling with. You should have that in your life if you don't know God. There is only one way that you will ever find any cure for your soul and the sickness in it, and that is to come to know Jesus Christ. And you can say that this is my God, that the salvation provided in Jesus Christ is my salvation. But for Christians, this is our hope, that this God who has allowed us to be in the pit is still our salvation, still our God. He hasn't left us or abandoned us. 
Jesus Christ was deprived of food for 40 days and 40 nights, deprivation. He was deprived of sleep so often during his earthly ministry, spending many nights in prayer. It's not accidental or coincidental that he was in a deep sleep, the same word used to describe Jonah when he was asleep on the boat, exhausted, worn out. It's not surprising that Simon of Cyrene had a curious cross, absolutely worn out. He spent his entire life in captivity, the bondage of our flesh being burdened with humanity. He underwent inner turmoil. My soul, is, my soul is sorrowful even to death, he said in John 12. He suffered oppression at the hands of his enemies. They beat him. They flogged him. They mocked him. They hung him up between two criminals. How do you like that? The king of kings, no different than all these lawbreakers. And then when he was hanging on the cross, Matthew 27, 43, he trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. In other words, where is your God? You who claim to be the son of God, who are saying over and over again, I am, where's your God now? Because your God would not crucify you. And then he went into complete, utter darkness of the soul. The psalmist experiences oppression and darkness of the soul, and we will experience it too, likely, at some point in our Christian walk. Hopefully we all don't, but likely at some point we will find ourselves being able to say at least some of what the psalmist in Psalm 42 says, and it's not pleasant. But let none of us misunderstand this. Jesus Christ experienced hell on earth, literally. Eternal darkness, eternal blackness, sandwiched into about three hours, where he was utterly God-forsaken, completely cast out and condemned, because he stood in the place of you and me and every believer. So his wasn't just some sort of spiritual depression. His was spiritual blackness and hopelessness and despair. And he went all the way down to those very depths for you and me so that we would never have to see that, ever. We will never have to go through the darkness and the blackness and the despair that Jesus went through on the cross for us, ever. Now, we will taste some darkness. We will taste difficulty. We will taste a depressed soul and a downcast spirit within us, absolutely. That's part of the Christian life. But it is a heaven when compared with what Jesus did for us. And he did all this, worn out, weak, with no military force to decide. Well, the legions of angels, but they didn't come. He didn't call them. Just weakness. He did this for us. Now, that's a savior. Because if you've ever gone through spiritual depression and darkness, all you get is weakness and blackness and difficulty. And you can't help yourself out of a five-gallon bucket, even if you're eight feet tall. You, you just can't do it. Here's a Savior who's weak, beaten up, mocked, crucified, and scorned. And he does all this. Truly, he's got to be God. He has to be. No human being could do that. And he walks through God's wrath for our sins. If Jesus Christ had not undergone soul torment in our place, then our future would be the darkness of hell. And we would not again praise God. We would again rise just to be judged and condemned. But because Jesus Christ has done this for us, 
Here's the lot of every single Christian in this room, no matter how we're doing right now. We will again praise God. We will likely again praise him in this life and sing about him and glory in him. And when we get to heaven, we're going to praise him unboundedly. Like the psalmist talks about with these glad shouts of joy. It's going to be amazing. Let's pray.